Hey everyone, Ian Scotto here. Hopefully you're all gearing up for Thanksgiving. Um, I know I am because I'm not currently in New York as you're hearing this. Uh, I'm actually, I'm recording this prior in New York, but by the time this goes up, I'll be in Pittsburgh celebrating Thanksgiving with my grandma who lives there and my uncle and my parents will be there as well. So it's going to be a great Thanksgiving, I know. Um, I don't get to see my grandma often enough and she's one of the most important people and being the reliable voice on this podcast, I'm often stuck in New York, which, you know, not the worst place to be stuck, but uh, yeah, I, I got to be here or else you guys don't get two shows every week. So I was trying to figure out what am I going to put up for while I'm away. And luckily we have some really kick-ass members only episodes that we did back when we were behind the paywall, which as many of you know, we got rid of. Um, and so now you'll have access to all those shows. And I figured a lot of you didn't get a chance to hear when we had on George Hand. And it was excellent show. Got a great response from those who heard it. So this is Delta operator George Hand. He gets really in-depth with his work in combating human trafficking. Uh, myself and Jack Murphy hosting this one. And if you guys like these episodes, you can actually check out the full back catalog of episodes now at softrep.com slash radio or softrepradio.us. A lot of you are asking where to get the back episodes. You know, I originally took them off iTunes, so they're kind of gone forever on there, but they're still up on our website, and hopefully it's some incentive to join and become a team. Remember, when you hear from all these great authors that we have on that are putting out new articles all the time. Uh, so Without further ado, this is Delta Operator George Hand getting in-depth on human trafficking. Check it out. Brute Force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio. Special operations, military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Army Ranger and Green Beret, Jack Murphy. Good riddance. Hasta lasagna. Don't get any on you. Marine Scout Sniper, Jason Delgado. It's just something we believe in. I associate that with taste buds. I like freaking chocolate chip mint. Why is this flavor boring? Because his whole life is boring. But whatever. And now, here's your co-host and producer of this operation, Ian Scottow. First time actually on the podcast, we had him once when we filled in on Sirius, George Hand. Yeah, I know. It's uh, ridiculous because we have like a really solid pool of talented people, very interesting people working as writers at SoftRep, but we haven't had all of them on. We've actually, we've had a lot of them on, yeah. but a lot of them, they haven't been on. So. And a lot of them become favorites. Corey yeah. Awanis in particular, people are like, you got to get him on. They, they the, love when he comes The Odyssean, on. people love all of his stories. Um, George is a very, very interesting person, did a lot of interesting things and continues to, um, and, uh, this, within the next week, I'm hoping to get contracts from Brandon to give out to five people. One of them is George, um, to write their, uh, write their memoirs that we'll be publishing through software. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's George, George's one. Jim West is one. And uh, Oh, so it's happening. Holy it's, shit. It's I ha- didn't know this. Yeah, this it's, is news it, to me. It's happening, yeah. Uh, and there's a couple others that are unannounced as of yet. Um, I know who they are. They're exciting, cool people. Um, did interesting things in the military. Uh, but Jim and George are amongst the first generation that will go through the soft rep imprint. And that's through St. Martin's, right? So this is going to be... No. Okay. No. It, uh, it's a different public... It'll be a soft rep imprint that we control, and the distribution of physical copies to bookstores will be through a major brand publisher. So it will be, if I want to pick up Jim West's memoir, it'll be at Barnes & Noble. Sorry. Yes. I'm, I'm touching uh, Jack's foot, if you don't wonder why I'm saying sorry. That, that's okay. <laughs> we have this, like, small desk in front of us. It's not a real studio. Have, like, you ever, have you ever sat at, like, a Starbucks or something like that across from, like, some girl that kicks you over and over yeah, and over yeah. again? Well, uh, the worst is the movie theater when that happens. Yeah, the movie theater's bad, too. But, I mean, I've been, like, trying to work at my laptop, and I'm sitting across from a girl, and she'll, like, kick me in the shins. If and, she's hot, that could lead to some good conversation. But, well, you're not single. Yeah, I, I don't care. I'm like, <laughs> man, stop. Stop. Yeah. Um, all right. So, but it, George, George's book, Jack's book, it'll be available everywhere books are sold. Uh, George and Jim. Uh, the, I just said Jack. Yeah, the, Jim, ja- the Jack book you might have to <laughs> wait a while longer for. I, I'm, I think I'm finally going to pull the trigger on that, though. I, I was, uh, we were out at the book release party yesterday. Yeah, for Chris. Uh, for Chris, Holy shit. Chris Peranto's uh, book, what, uh, the, um, the, the Ranger Way. Yeah. Um, yeah, huge crowd out there. And anyway, I, uh, I ran into a editor for a, a major book publisher and started talking about it. And, and it kind of like reintroduced the idea of it into my mind again. And I was like, man, because I, I, it's like something I'm very reluctant to do. Maybe if I take, I think between like the military and all the stuff I've done from, for SoftRap, there's some good stories in there. There's some drama. There's some romance. There's some danger. There's me doing a lot of stupid things I probably shouldn't have done, <laughs> you know. So I don't know. I maybe I, I think I'm probably going to take the plunge on that, but that's down the line. You don't really write a lot of personal stuff. And when I look back at it, it's kind of funny. Um, the I've written hundreds and hundreds of articles. The amount of articles about the stuff I did in the military, I think there's two. Uh, I wrote about the the wedding that we crashed in Iraq. Mm-hmm. The first operation that my ODA participated in was what we crashed a wedding, uh, and there was a, a, there was a major bad guy on that one. Um, and then the other operation I wrote about that I was a participant in was a joint mission uh, that a couple, me and one other guy on my ODA, five Iraqi SWAT team guys, we went out with a long-range reconnaissance platoon, uh, conventional Army guys. Um, and did a joint operation out in the desert for a week. And I wrote, a, I think, a two-part story about that. And that was years and years ago I wrote that. Um, great guys that I worked with. It was an interesting mission, I guess. Uh, not a lot of action, but um, one of the privates in the worst platoon did find a spot of cachet of weapons, a hundred you know, probably 150 weapons buried out in the desert. And we dug it up and blew it up. And it was cool. I'll have to link to this on the show. This is because was didn't you do an article or series called Wedding Crashers? There's an article called Wedding Crashers. Yeah, because I remember the Wedding that. Crashers. Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to it on on the show yeah. for the people listening. 
uh, which, by the way, is only members listening. So but that, appreciate that's, it. That's it, man. Like all of those like crazy missions and, with Ranger Battalion and even things that happen stateside and training and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I just never really talked about. But you've also never, uh, as far as I know, you've never written an article about transitioning. You've talked about it on the show a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you're right. No, I talked about it a little bit on the show, but yeah, never, never in major detail. Yeah, and I, uh, and then there's the whole like, the second half of the book could be in part anyway because it, it's my story, but it would also be in, in some ways the soft rep story, sure, uh, and how all that came about, and uh, and all the twists and turns involved and i was telling brandon last night i was like if they ever made a movie about us it, it would have some similarities to the uh that movie social network about facebook oh, yeah. uh, you know because not not that we got in like big well there was a little bit of uh we did get a lawsuit we did get sued that's right by someone uh, i won't which go which is why we had to take down certain episodes I won't, I won't go into the details of that right now uh <laughs> because of legalities um but um, my my only point there is that there, there's uh, there's definitely the drama. Yeah, you know it's all included. It's all in there, and uh, some of the stories are just like stranger than fiction. I guess the only well the, the big difference and what that movie is based around is you guys didn't steal the idea for Safra. No, we didn't steal the idea. <laughs> um, what happened was that we had somebody a, a bit player, you could say, in the company decided after we started to become successful that he had a extraordinary uh influence in making the company successful oh with the inside the team room he, he, he literally yeah. moderated a, a, a video uh interview and that was it um but then he decided after we started becoming successful and selling some advertisements and things like this he decided that he was the reason why soft rep was successful and, and sued us and uh and that gentleman uh, apparently has a history of suing his former employers as a as a form of uh, you know that's his revenue that's how he makes money. Yeah, um, uh, and I'm fucked up, man. That's about as far as I can say. There's actually the actually the we had to settle out of court um, because it was one of those things. It's like okay, do we spend a million dollars winning this lawsuit or do we settle for? A substantially lower amount of money. Yeah, and, and I mean, so it would have cost us more money to win. And, and like I said, part of that was taking down some really great material. That's the one thing that sucks. Yeah. I mean, did we convert some of that into like audio? I think we're going to. Yeah. Yeah. And take out this, this guy's individual. Parts. Yeah. But I guess the, the thing I could say for those who might be newer members, the, the one thing that I think I could say is basically we had some great material with Chris Kyle who passed away that we no longer have up on the site. Yeah. But we have rights to... Chris Kyle's audio, as far as I know, and we, yeah, we're going to do something with you should, it. You should convert it into like a, into an audio file and and put it on the podcast. Yeah, Brandon has mentioned that, and hopefully we will at some point. But we've just been doing these live shows, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is great. But people do love hearing from Chris and knowing that he was a part of the Inside the Team Room series. It's the first one, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so before we get to George Hand, who, by the way, uh, former U.S. Army Master Sergeant and First Special Op, uh, Special Forces Operational Detachment for Delta Force. Um, SFOD. Yeah. Uh, First Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. 
Yeah. So like the long, the long winded name, but everyone knows it just as Delta Force or the unit. Yeah. So, uh, so before we get into him, I saw that the latest article you put up was meeting general Sabin. Am I saying it right? Saban. Saban, an architect of Philippine counterinsurgency. Um, so you got to go to general Saban's Dude. 60th birthday, who's a, uh, Philippine Marine Corps general. And I was reading it this morning and just hearing you casually talk about him plotting the death of Abu Sabaya <laughs> while you're drinking beer, eating pig roast for his 60th. It, it seems it, like a fun time, it, man. It was. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a hell of a fun <laughs> experience. It's funny. I, uh, I got introduced to General Saban um, through a mutual friend. And, uh, and I, it's, you know, I explained to him what I was doing in the Philippines. Like, you know, I'd love to meet you and interview you and talk to you about, you know, he's retired now. He was the commandant of the Marine Corps amongst many, many other things he did in, in the Marines, the Philippine Marines. Um, and, uh, you know, because it's his style, he's, uh, he's like, okay, you come down and meet me. Meet me and you can interview me in the field. I was like, what? Okay. So the next thing I know, I'm on a plane down to Zamboanga in Mindanao. I get off the airplane. I get met by the plainclothes Marine security detachment guys that Saban has arranged to pick me up. And uh, they drive me out to Saban's house in the middle of his 60th birthday party. And all of his Marine friends are there and his family is around him. And this is his, you know, private residence. And uh, and he was, you know, super cool. Had me over, uh, you know, sitting down next to him. And uh, his his wife, uh, I was introduced to, a very sweet woman. Uh, like, maybe the first thing she asks me is, you drink beer, right? <laughs> I'm like, yes, ma'am. Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, so we're sitting there drinking San, San Mig uh, beer in Zamboanga. And he's telling, you know, we're telling all kinds of war stories and things like that. And I'm sitting next to people who uh, planned Operation Ultimatum, which was an amphibious landing that the Marines did again uh, to go target Abu Sayyaf, like stuff I had read about in the past. Yeah. And, and these are the people. They're sitting there with me. Uh, I'm sitting across from the guy who put the tracking bug in Abu Zabaya's boat um, when they targeted him. He was the Abu Sayyaf spokesman. Um, during the early years of you know what we our American war on terror, so like two thousand two, two thousand three, um, Saban was one of the he is one of the architects of the counterinsurgency strategy in the Philippines. He was one of the people who realized that we can't just go in guns blazing, uh, we can't win this conflict through arms alone. That we have to actually provide services and provide security for the Philippine people uh, and win them over so that they they come to the government side. Uh, and, and it makes the insurgency less appealing. Um, so Saban, uh, you know, he is, uh, he's an interesting cat. He talks about how humans are the center of gravity and, uh, and counterinsurgency strategy and winning the hearts and minds. And I think he's very uh, serious and very sincere about that. But there, there's two sides of it, right? Uh, because I think General Saban can also uh, bring the hammer as well. Sounds like uh, it. Yeah, and I, I think he br- he brings the heat to <laughs> to uh, Abu Sayyaf and, and some of these other groups as well. Uh, and uh, he has such an interesting story too. As a young man, as a young officer, he was he participated in the 1989 coup in the Philippines, and he was a member of what is called YOU, the Young Officers Union. Uh, which were the you know disenfranchised Philippine military officers uh, who want, who were reformers, um, 
Well, rightly or wrongly, though, they, they, they were disenfranchised with the government and they participated in, uh, in the 1989 coup was, you know, got fairly ugly. Some of them were bloodless. This one was kind of nasty. Um, so General Saban was sentenced to prison, uh, spent some time in jail and received a pardon. And uh, after that, he was uh, almost as a punishment. He was exiled to the southern Philippines where the insurgencies were. And it turned out to be uh, a good fit. You know, General yeah. Saban, I think, very, he thrived in that environment. Um, but I, uh, the, the article that we're talking about was just that first d- night where I first met Yeah, you, you leave a bit of a cliffhanger for the right. next morning where you have to get up after At, indulging in some alcohol with yeah, General five, Saban. Yeah, five in the morning and get on a plane to Tawi-Tawi, which is the southernmost island in the Philippines before Malaysia. Um and, uh, and we went down there for the activation ceremony of 2nd Marine Brigade, which is stationed on that island. Uh, so, again, with all of General Saban's friends, active and retired Marine Corps veterans. Um, and uh, I also interviewed General Saban and his friends on tape for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours about a lot of different subjects. So there's um, quite a bit more to talk about and quite a bit more to write. Nice. One of the main things uh, is the Abu Sabaya, um, how he was killed uh, and how that all came about. That's one interesting story. And then uh, also one of the things I want to write about is the Camp Medina raid, which uh, was done by Force Recon. And General Saban, he, he was in the background of that as a, as a staff officer at the time. And it was the first real big raid against uh, Abu Sayyaf. So it has a kind of historical uh, aspect to it. it. I think it was 92 that that raid happened. Hmm. So I'll, I'll go pick through all of that. Yeah, I'm looking very forward to the continued articles on it. Um, we got to get to George, though. The one thing I was going to mention in connection with that, though, is that just recently in the past few days, the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, declared martial law and is looking to expand that. So there's a lot happening in the Philippines right now that you'll probably be covering. Yeah, there's an article I wrote today that should be out, if not today, tomorrow, about everything happening in uh, Marawi. And um, and really it kind of goes to what we talked about on the last podcast about ISIS being a brand, a sort of plug-and-play brand, and that these these, uh, bandits in Marawi are really, you know, they're, they're just criminals. They're, they're a local terrorist group. It's not transnational terrorism. It's not ISIS. And we shouldn't give these groups the credibility or the legitimacy of, of saying that they're part of some transnational terrorist network or some sort of caliphate that's spreading across the world. That's not what it is at all. Um, and we shouldn't recognize them like that. Sure. Um, I have some other great stuff to get to, but we'll get to it after George Hand because... Yeah. Uh, He's, he's all set to go. Yeah, so let's, let's give him a call. Let's bring him on. So joining us for the first time, as I said on the podcast, uh, very few people listening probably remember, but when we filled in on SiriusXM, we brought on George. That's the only time yeah. we had him on air. But we've been remiss in not having him on the he, podcast a lot sooner. Yeah, and there's been plenty of tweets sent to him of, when are you going on the podcast? <laughs> and George is like, whenever I'm invited on, I'll come on. And I'm trying to invite everybody yeah. on. So uh, George yeah. is a former U.S. Army Master Sergeant and 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment for Delta Force. He's an expert on counter-human trafficking work. And I guess the first thing we could start off with is when I was messaging you this morning talking about what we can get into, you let me know that you just did some work with a human traf- uh, human traffic task force 
and just made the biggest bust this past week for human trafficking in Albuquerque history. So that's pretty huge. Yeah, it, it, it really was. I mean, uh, it, it was a pretty exciting thing. And um, I think I posted on soft rep one of the pictures that my understudy caught captured of me and I turned it into a meme and, and I think I put it on a uh, soft rep. Oh, where you're sitting on the lawn the backyard. chair. Yeah. And I, and I really was, you know, I just, I just, I mean, we're in the backyard for the first time and I just plopped down in this lawn chair and was just kind of grinning. And I knew I was, but I didn't expect somebody to be taking a picture of me, but I probably grinned for about five minutes straight. It was just, it was that satisfying to, 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 uh, let it sink in that they had uh, all three of these people that we went after that morning. And uh, there, there's a fourth one that's still at large, but oddly enough, he actually showed up to court to watch the kingpin go through an arraignment. And, uh, and I'm like, why, why didn't they, <laughs> why didn't they grab him? Uh, and I'm not, the explanation is very ambiguous. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, the paperwork might not be in order, but um the, the kingpin made a full confession, just point blank, and uh, so there's not even going to be a trial. I mean, he's already – they've basically already sentenced this guy. He's going uh, to get 40 years wow. just for the human trafficking piece. But he is involved in uh, two murders. Um, the, the third person, they picked him up. He was right here in Albuquerque again, although he comes from uh, Fort Benning. He's rumored to be the trigger man. But this kingpin, uh, Cornelius, Cornelius Galloway, he's the guy that ordered uh, the executions of this uh, young woman and her boyfriend. Why, why were they uh, executed? I'll tell you, Jack. Uh, she, and her name is Toby Stanfield. And, I, and I'm saying these names because they're already showing pictures on the news. Some of the pictures are, are, are my pictures, you know, <laughs> that I put together in reports and sent to the Leo they never really said anything about the pic, about the reports, but obviously they're they're liking them because they're pulling stuff out and using it. She um, she got mixed up uh, for whatever reason. She got mixed up in prostitution. Then she got mixed up with them in their prostitution ring, and before you know it, uh, you know she's being held against her will and uh, treated just miserably. They kept her in a kennel at. Uh, one of the, the the famous motels in town. They kept her in a kennel. They kept another girl, two other women, kept them in kennels. They would whip the crap out of them with electric cords and, uh, you know, just uh, mistreatment, torture, etc. And they were selling them, you know, uh, pimping them out. Uh, in two of the cases, the, the women are underage. Um, and this, uh, okay, so the two younger women, they got out. They, you know, escaped essentially. The Leo got hold of them. We put them in a motel for and watched them for several days, just guarded them till we found a place out of state, like a halfway house or a recovery place. We drove one to uh, Houston, Texas, and she's doing well. We drove the second one to Phoenix, Arizona, and she is also doing well. But now that there's not going to be a trial, I mean, the point was we wanted to hold them so they could come back and testify. And since there's not going to be a trial, they're uh, really, they're on their own. They're free to come back. And of course, the third girl, the one that was killed, she walked out uh, on Galloway 
you know, uh, just stepped out and escaped on her own, just did not want to work for him. And she was freelancing. Her and her boyfriend were freelancing. And she was still, uh, you know, prostituting. So that was contrary to his business. That was competition. He put together a scheme involving his wife and um, his right-hand man. They lured her to an apartment, and they uh, capped her in the head. Wow. They took her out to a, a park. And I remember seeing this in the news. I had no idea. I think it was around February, January, February time frame. I remember seeing it in the news. It was like, wow, they found a dead body, a woman. That sucks. Hey, it wasn't in my neighborhood. That's that's fantastic, you know. But now we've moved all the way across town, and it's it's a park that's very near our house now. But, uh, yeah, I distinctly heard about that, and I distinctly heard about them finding a, a body in the Motel 6 off Interstate 25, and that was the boyfriend who had also been shot in the head. So they were both, that, you know, I, they were both murdered yeah. because they interfered with the business plan and they bucked his system. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They, you know, try to freelance out there. I mean, there's, uh, at a certain level, independence just don't go over well. They yeah. got to be assumed by, they're going to be sucked into somebody's network or they're just, they're just not going to work. Yeah. You got to be affiliated. So, yeah. You have to, yeah, you have to have an affiliation. Otherwise, you know, I mean, that's, that's at a pretty, uh, poor street level. Uh, when you look up to the more, the higher paid, call girls, you know, that just basically jet set around the United States and stay in hotels near the airports, you know, they, that's a, a bit different story. Like, yeah, they can actually be independent and keep all their money. But when it's down in a street level, uh, there's, there, there's, there's no having it. And they typically work out of the worst uh, motels, you know, on the drag strip. Mm-hmm. And when things aren't going well, like on Backpage, if they're just not getting any uh, hits on Backpage, we, we see him walking out on uh, on the Strip on Central. And we know that, you know, well, things aren't going well on Backpage because there she is walking. Well, congratulations, George, on, uh, on you know, being a part of this big bust. Yeah. I mean, it's great work. And um, I was wondering if we could just backtrack a little bit. And, um, sure. Because I wanted to ask you about, you know, your experiences in the unit. Now, I know you were a recce guy. Um, and talk about how some of those skills um, transferred over into your work in counter-human trafficking, or or if they didn't transfer. Um, but you know, get a little bit into, uh, I guess, a little bit into the weeds about how all that panned out for you. Um, well, it. Uh, I mean, the, the boss Nick McKinley, he knew that he wanted people, he wanted spec ops guys, and he wanted. He wanted guys that were um, mature. He didn't want young guys fresh out of the unit that are ready to, you know, trigger happy yeah. and uh, ready to kick down doors and all this stuff. He wanted guys, or I actually explained it to him before he accepted uh, my definition. I said, hey, you know, Nick, I've kind of had all the excitement I want to have. So I'm not interested <laughs> in going out and, you know, like fist fighting some pimp. Um, you know, when I go to take my kids to the Disneyland, I... I go on the merry go around with them. I, I, buck, I buckle up that <laughs> that leather belt. You know, that's me. <laughs> and I hang on. To, to, you know, I'm not the cool guy standing there. You know, with his legs crossed, leaning against the horse. You know, but and he's really he's really pleased to hear that. Um, but he that's he knew he wanted guys like like uh, like you, Jack, like me. Uh, and he's and that's still really the only people he's interested in. 
just because of the skill set. I mean, the recce skill set, be it out in the field or urban. And he knows I've done a lot of uh, operations in urban environments. Um, most, I would say most of my, the vast majority of my recce experience uh, took place in the Balkans and specifically in uh, Bosnia. So I did, a, uh, in fact, I did zero uh, rural recce. Everything was urban. And, um, you know, we, we did everything from uh, putting a guy in the back of a, of a delivery truck that had some blacked out windows to sit in there and, and physically operate a camera, you know, to, to film certain people that we we're looking for. So that's a manned OP. Uh, and then we had uh, anything that you could imagine or that you could create in terms of a remote um, uh, camera mounted in a car in different configurations that, you know, cars that we would just um, park somewhere, have a way to kind of sight them in on the field of view that we wanted to capture and then leave the car for 24 hours. And they would be videoing, let's say, the uh, front door of a motel or the front door of a house. And, and for 24 hours, yeah, we'd go pick that up and then just watch the film. And George, and just, to, just to interrupt real quick, just for the listeners who don't necessarily know what you're talking about, especially the, the millennials out there who, who are like, what in the world is George talking about? In, in the 1990s, we were sending guys to Bosnia looking for Bosnian war criminals. And, I mean, that's that's what we're what we're, you're talking about here, isn't it, George? Yes, it is. Pipwicks person indicted for war crimes so you know you yeah. were you were involved in all of that with the unit uh and, and then how did uh how did these skills come in handy um working counter human trafficking in the united states well uh, um it, it uh, serves me in that i know how to uh for one thing i know how to to deck out my truck and turn it into a hide site a mobile hide site and um, I've got, uh, uh, we found that oddly enough, you know, you go to Home Depot and you go look at some weed barrier. It's that barrier you put down on the dirt before you put rocks and garden and it keeps the weeds from growing up underneath. Well, that stuff is porous material. You know, it'll let, uh, it lets water through, but it won't let a plant through. But if you hang that over your windows in certain configurations, you can still see out pretty well, but persons on the outside, uh, they're, they're not likely to be able to see inside and see a silhouette of a person sitting there. So I've, in my vehicle, I mean, I've, I've got my truck decked out permanently. I drive around 24 seven with my hide sight up. Um, and I have curtains that I can deploy in just less than a second, Wow! you know, just give a tug and they fall down. I have, I have one that falls down, covers the complete dash. Uh, I feel like front. this would be a great software article, just like inside George's vehicle. Yeah, because I actually have a set of pictures that I started to do that article. Uh, I think it was Nick Kaufman was had written something about surveillance. It was a good article about surveillance, and I thought about uh, throwing my two cents worth because I do a lot of counter surveillance, surveillance, uh, SDRs. I mean, each time I go after. Uh, a target, I got to do an SDR on the way out there, and I got to do an SDR on the way back. And, and an SDR is a surveillance detection route or a burn run. It's designed to, I mean, we, we kind of skip the, um, we go right into the provocative and aggressive maneuvers. In other words, we do some really uh, aggressive turns 
that if somebody were to follow you, were trying to follow you, if they were to do that same turn, it would completely compromise the fact that they're trying to follow you. And um, if they did not want you to know that uh, they were following you, then they have to skip that turn, and now they've lost you. So, and I, that's all stuff that I, you know, went over again and again uh, in training to get into the unit. And uh, I had to go through it all over again when I went into the Advon Squadron or the Advanced Force Operations Squadron. Um, just, I have, a, I have a lot of it under my belt, and it just, it feels second nature to me to do it. So a lot so of the, to, I'm sorry. Go ahead, George. Both, well, I was going to say the. I mean, I my a height sight in my truck is it's in its it's it's in like its second revision right now. The first one, yeah. I mean, sitting in there for hundreds of hours, I just you know you sometimes you just sit there and stare at your nets and think you know this could be a whole lot better, and I should do this and I should do that. So I actually revamped it just. Uh, just one week ago, and they're they're so much more efficient. I mean, I, I I can ride with these nets all the way down, but I'll only do it in on a uh, residential streets. If I'm going out onto a boulevard, you know, or an avenue, then I pull those nets up because it's just it's just not safe. But I can creep around on residential streets with all my nets down, and in some cases, I mean, if you're looking from the side, you're looking through five. Um, barriers. You're looking through two tinted windows, two black nets, and then a third black net in the middle. I mean, it, it is dark in there. You, I can turn on my I can turn on my uh, cabin light because I've got a red filter over it. But I can turn that on, and um, you can't see it from the outside. So you got a pretty good surveillance operation going. And, and would you say that's the bulk of your work is trying to keep tabs on it because. Uh, the other thing that I, I think is interesting here is, you know, the difference between working in a military capacity in, a, in an environment overseas, and now you're working kind of augmenting law enforcement, uh, you know, domestically yes. here in the United States. Um, well, what do you think the, the difference in the dynamics are? Um, not really sure how to answer that, Jack. Um, I know that the pucker factor was definitely higher excuse me, overseas. And I mean, I don't feel, I don't know. I don't, I, I rarely ever feel in danger when I'm doing these operations here in the city. I mean, this last one, I mean, these, these guys are, you know, they're known murderers. So we knew they were shooters and, uh, um, it did affect, it, it did affect the way we did our business a little bit. I mean, we're, we're always carrying, I was carrying, um, but we were really uh, hell-bent on getting a, a beacon on this guy's car because we didn't, I mean, we'd already set up on him for like four days watching his residence. It was getting harder to sit set up in that neighborhood. But I got kicked out of uh, a parking spot at least one time by a guy that said I was parked in his girlfriend's parking spot. I'm like, ah, okay, sir, I'm going to move. You know, and I, and I had to move, and I go, well, if I have to move a couple times, we're probably not going to be able to set up in this neighborhood anymore. Um, so we really wanted to beacon it so we didn't have to set up and watch him anymore. Just watch his beacon move through town. And if it stops, the closest guy to him can go ahead and drive on out there and see where he stopped and why and then who's with him and that sort of thing. Um, and how the dynamics carry over, uh, 
like I said, uh, there, there's really not that much of the pucker factor. I can do much more stuff by myself than I would dare have done overseas by myself. Because a permissive environment. In fact, I, I, I never did anything by myself because it's just, you don't do it. You don't cross the zone of separation into bad guy territory by yourself. Um, and that, that, that's what brought up that article about uh, Bob Horrigan and I, that when we did that uh, swim under the bridge to try to recover surveillance camera. Yeah, so you can get away with a lot more in a permissive environment like the, the United States in, in yeah. our case. Yeah. Can you talk a yeah, little sure. bit of, at all about uh, how this case came to fruition? I mean, how, how you kind of got it to the point where the police were able to make an arrest? I mean, you, you were able to, were you able yeah. to get that beacon on the car? Um, interesting, interesting enough. Now, this car was a BMW, and uh, my understudy was Matt Finney. He's the, he was going to be the guy to beacon that, that uh, BMW, and it was at the end of a long, dark driveway, very narrow. And uh, um, I was kind of nervous because uh, I, I couldn't tell Matt to go beacon that car. And it was, it was a hairy experience. I, I couldn't tell him to do it, but he had the beacon. And uh, I was trying to think of ways to get the beacon back from him so that I could do it. Uh, but I, there was no graceful way to do that. I mean, if I asked for the beacon, he, he knows why. But uh, I didn't think he was going to do it. And he did it. He walked down that, well, this guy, you got to figure, he's a professional boxer and an MMA fighter. Hmm. And that's all well and good, but these guys are shooters. So I was still real worried if they should suddenly come out and, and catch him, you know, what if they're carrying a piece? Well, Matt did it. And he, he got up under that car to the rear and he slapped that beacon clunk and it didn't stick. It's magnetic. And so he hit it four or five more times, you know, clunk, 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 clunk. But then he even worked his way around to the side of the car. And again, you know, it reached as far under clunk, 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 clunk. Wow. And he came walking <laughs> back out immediately. I'm like, what? He goes, you won't believe this sh- shit. It wouldn't stick to anything. And um, I said, I've never run into that before. That's incredible. And we did our, we did our homework that night, and, and we came come to find out that the uh, vice guys ran into the same problem. Hmm. So they tried to magnetically tag it, and they, um, they couldn't get it to stick. They went to a garage and found the same car that was already up on jacks, and they looked at it. Basically, that car, the entire underside of it is covered in aluminum and plastic splash guards and skid plates. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Matt found from uh, internet research and some experts that he knows that there's about a, there's like a, about an eight by eight inch metal plate that's like dead, dead center on the long axis of the car right about in the middle. So he's practicing reaching, you know, because he, he's going to go back and do it again. And um, we did go back the next night and, uh, there was a whole bunch of cars there, Cadillacs, Ooh. more BMWs. They were just jammed in there. And I said, wow, something's up. Uh, and this was like two days before the, the hit. And I, I told the Leo, I said, hey, if, if, if I were to throw some advice your way, I would say move your hit 24 hours up because, you know, there's something's going on. There's, there's a reason for that meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe he got wind that something was going to happen and they're going to bug out. But... Uh, so we couldn't. We knew we weren't going to do it that night. We just we we got up at uh, about 3:45 in the morning, came back out, and there was a a gate thrown completely across the driveway. 
It was a tall gate, then it was a low gate. So you weren't going to go under it. You could get over it, but you were going to make a lot of racket. So we, again, we didn't get the beacon on it. Um, so in the day of the hit, we, you know, we asked, say, we, we want to be a place. We want to be in a place where we can see some action, but not interfere. If you don't tell us a place, then we're going to find our own place. And um, so they gave us a spot where they were going to, uh, they were going to physically take out the dr- the car if it left the apartment. And it was an intersection. So we sat up on that intersection for about four hours straight. And um, I saw a police helicopter hover, come to a hover over the residence about <laughs> um, you know a mile down the road. And I said, Matt, you know the shit's on. Let's. And we just raced for. We raced for the residence, and there was already a 360-degree cordon around that block, and there was about 35 cops. The SWAT were spread out all over the street. You know, took a look in the – tried to go down the back alley. There was a big old armored car parked there where it had run down that alley, just crashed the back gate open, wrecked its fence, <laughs> and then just froze down, you know, the black side or the back side of uh, the guy's place. I was – I, you know, I – I was impressed with that. I said, that's the way to do it. You freeze down 360 degrees and uh, make sure no squirters get out and, and run away. And that that case basically, I mean, we were working on all kinds of cases. Uh, we, we still are. Um, the, the, the next big one, I think, is uh, probably going to happen in the next couple of weeks. I've been watching. I found this network like last April and have been watching these, these people ever since. Uh, but it, the the cops just uh, they got a lead. They did some interviews. They put together you know a quick page of notes and slapped it on us and said, "Hey, this is going to be big. Can you guys help us out?" And we just took it and uh, did our usual products, nice. made our network association uh, diagrams, did all sorts of OSINT digs, got a ton of information, personal information uh, from our research. Uh, and turned over uh, some really good products to them. And uh, right away they asked us if, if uh, we could help out with, you know, working on the street with them. And we said, well, that's, yeah, that's why we're here. So I, I remember you talking a little uh, about some frustration in the past that, not, you know, not as many arrests were being made as you would have liked. I was wondering if maybe it sounds like, is this the result of months and, you know, years of surveillance um, kind of finally coming to a head, uh, and, and maybe some of those products are starting to pay off now over a longer time period. Yeah, Jack, that's you're you're uh, you're all over it. Um, it, it. You know, coming into the uh, this this task force, I recognized right away that the most difficult piece about it was going to be the law enforcement integration piece. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, we we I, I boast that we can. Um, we can do all this busy work. We can do a lot of stuff that cops can't do by law. Uh, a whole lot of things that they can't do. They're just not allowed to do. We can do them. We can hand them a product that is actionable. And if they, you know, they will agree that, yeah, this is, uh, we can do a warrant on this one. So we're, we're handing them a packed parachute and all they have to do is jump. Hmm. That's the way I describe it. And, and uh, it, it was really long and painful process. Um, to try to get the to integrate with the Leo, because the one thing we don't have is arrest authority, and they do. So, it, 
we, I knew it was going to take a long time. Nick really, you know, he really understood how long it was going to take to get the, the law enforcement on our side and to get their trust. And what we're seeing now is, yeah, we're, we're seeing their trust. And seeing that relationship build a little bit. Yeah. And uh, w- when we first started out, they had a vice squad of just two guys, uh, undercover guys, uh, former Marines, and they disbanded that vice uh, within weeks. Just, they were gone. So now we're operating, you know, with with nobody, no special agents, not from the Metro Police Department. Well, over time, they saw they saw the uh, they were recognizing that there's some there's some good work being done here, and that they need the advice back. So they reassembled it and plussed it up even. And uh, those guys are real go getters. You know, when we hand them product. That same day, you know, they're already they're already making some kind of uh, getting some kind of results out of it. It's just real hard hitters, motivated, and we've got two special agents from the attorney general's office that are smoking good. Uh, another two agents from Homeland Security. That's one of our best guys, in my opinion. This 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 guy really um, he's, he really goes after some cases, and I'm counting on him to go after this next big case, this next uh, network that. Uh, I'm I'm looking at we're we're pulling out the number one and number two networks from the city. That's what we're doing. Good. If we get both of these, that's Good. one and two. Then then there'll be a void and that'll get filled up and then we'll get them too. Then beyond that, we're just like chasing ones and twosies, you know, one guy that's pimping one girl. But that's okay. We'll we'll go after them too. To add and, add a little bit of context, um, could you tell us about the Deliver Fund and, and exactly how it works in this organization that you work for? I'll, I'll do my best, um, short of just uh, spouting out the mission statement, but uh, it, it, if you understand what OSINT is, and I know you guys do, but uh, for the audience, it means open source intelligence. And that means it's there, there's all kinds of inf- information out there that you can get that legally uh, on people, places, and things. Um, I can get a whole lot of information on one individual using all of the uh, open source intelligence research techniques and tools that I have at my disposal. Um, we've got, we, we have, we're partnered with IBM and we use one of the nation's most powerful networking projects uh, or projects for building a network. It's called Analyst Notebook or I2. And we have um, other uh, tools that are, these aren't uh, available to the consumer. They're, you know, they're just not, you just can't go out there and download them and use them or even buy them for that matter. Some of these were just developed just for federal agents, for, uh, for example, others for only law enforcement, like Traffic Jam is for law enforcement only, but we have accounts. Uh, Deliver Fund's responsible for steering that project um, in a big way to, to the way it operates today. I've, I've put in my own recommendations and sometimes same day I see changes in the, in the program, you know, just based on my input. So we go out there and uh, using this legal means to collect open source intelligence, we put together, we do a lot of the busy work uh, and a lot of the work that the law enforcement guys don't have time or resources to do. And uh, we get all that done for them and pass it off to them and they make the arrest. And, and it includes, I mean, we will, we 
for example, Nick, Nick McKinley gave every one of our Leo contacts from all of our different offices, he gave them a MacBook Pro, brand new, because they didn't have uh, laptops in their office. He gave them, you know, uh, laptop computers, state-of-the-art laptop computers, loaded with the programs and the tools that we use for open-source uh, gathering. So now, since they're not funded for it, well, now they have it, they're able to use it. Um, there, there are some sting operations going on right now uh, in town at a certain motel that uh, Deliver Fund paid for the rooms. You know, we I said, how many rooms <laughs> do you need? Well, we need? We need five. So I got a trusted agent. I'll send her out and say, get five rooms, you know, use your credit card. That way it's not attributable to any of us or our names or our credit cards. And uh, I'll wire, you know, money into your bank account to cover you, plus some extra for doing this work for us. So we'll get the rooms. She'll give me the receipts. I'll, I'll claim those. And if the Leo needs, if they need phones, like they actually did need the two burner phones, uh, we got them phones, and they're using them right now. And uh, we got them a uh, internet backup source because they're they're having sketchy coverage at this particular location. And, and in to include, I'm not kidding, just cash. Here's two hundred dollars of incidental cash because those guys will go out. They'll need stuff. They'll pay for it out of their own pocket, you know. Or they'll they'll try to they'll try to get it from the department. And well, it, it takes like three weeks to get fifty dollars from the department and paperwork. So here, don't spend your money. Here's cash. It's uh, shocking sometimes how little resources uh, you know police departments have allocated for human trafficking, counter human trafficking. Uh, investigations and you know it's not really the fault of the departments necessarily a lot of the police officers you know they're down in the in the mud and they understand that there's an issue and that it needs more resources um but i, I remember talking to one police officer assigned to um crack down on uh on distribution of child pornography and it, it was like him and one other guy in an office um for a huge area and it, just the volume of crap that this guy was dealing with on a day-to-day basis was incredible it was yeah. way, way more than two people could yeah. ever process um and, you know, i mean he was telling me about uh one of the hits they got one of the guys who was trafficking in child pornography turned out to be a police officer in the department mm-hmm. and uh yeah and when they searched the guy's yeah. phone uh his girlfriend's little daughter was on the phone that's really unfortunate yeah that's, that's- it's, it doesn't surprise me, but it, it, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm not a callous monster. But, uh, yeah, that sucks. That's a new one for me. Uh, um, I, I completely, I, I admit that I um, was, was unaware of just how overworked these special agents are. Yeah. Um, you know, in, here in Albuquerque, we don't deal with Metro. They're too hard to deal with, and they're not interested. We're, we only deal with the special agents that are specifically um, interested in, in counter-human traffic. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at, at how overworked they are and how under-resourced they are. And I, and I can say that because I can compare them to the same organization if in Houston, Texas. Those guys have got a small army and are very well-resourced to go yeah. after human traffic. The thing they didn't know is they didn't have, they didn't have a really good understanding of how to go about it. Mm-hmm. And so they, we brought them over uh, in March 
and we gave him a 10-day class, you know, 10-day nonstop, no weekend off, just 10 days, eight hours a day. In the mornings, we did all classroom work, showed him how to, get, you know, gave him computers, first of all, uh, gave him all the, all the uh, resources, the accounts, the tools, showed him how to use them for 10 days. And we, ha- we actually, uh, our exercises were, you know, go to your hometown uh, hometowns back page and based on these criteria do your searches yep. and find people that you suspect are belong to human trafficking networks mm-hmm. and I taught him some techniques that I developed for finding your your victim the one that's being trafficked finding her in town and um, hopefully getting a good a facial ID ID photo of her prove that, yeah, the girl that's on this page is the girl that responds when you call this phone number. Wow. And here she is responding to uh, a residence that's completely phony. And I call that an, an out-call jilt. And there's an in-call jilt as well. And we taught the, we taught the police that. And uh, what the word is back in Houston is that you, you're not cool unless you're doing out-call jilts or, or saying the word out-call jilt. You know, they're and they're bringing in people so fast that the prosecuting attorneys are like, you know, giving them the timeout sign, like, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, basically, I mean, basically, they're starting cold in the morning. They're showing up at close of business with a guy, what a, a trafficker. What if any changes have taken place in this arena um, since the some of the dust ups with Backpage? Uh, you know, that's it, it's interesting because. You know, Backpage is uh, a huge, huge um, front for human trafficking. Some of the law enforcement officers I talked to, they they have no qualms about saying, you know, Backpage is bad. You know, they're doing bad things there. Um, But at the other hand, it also gave them a vehicle uh, to track human traffickers, to identify victims the way you were saying. So it was kind of a double-edged sword. And I was wondering, since they, I believe they've been cracking down on Backpage, uh, and even I think the CEO may have been indicted, um, if you could speak to if there had been any changes, if any, um, when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, I I completely know what you mean by that double-edged sword, because I experienced it myself, because I didn't have it. Uh, as well thought out as uh, thought out well ahead like Nick did but I mean we're largely responsible for getting Backpage's escort channel closed so when they slammed the escort channel closed I immediately went holy crap that's great but how do I find them now and that's where all the Leo were doing well they're like man you just just, just, uh, closed off our source for finding these guys and one day two days later we realized that those guys, everyone that was posting on escort channels, they just regrouped and now they're posting on women seeking men mm-hmm. and others and other websites. There are a couple of websites. There, there are a couple of servers out there, Jack, that that uh, the owners of Backpage had. They they set them up knowing that their escorts channel was going to get shut down, and then probably some more of their adult channels would get shut down. Um. Uh, one of them is in one of them's in the Netherlands, and the other is wherever it is. Um, uh, and the name the name kind of escapes me at the moment. It's something like Post It Fast, or something to that effect. And it's just uh, if you post everything you post to that Post It Fast server, shows up on Backpage. Interesting. 
So yeah, uh, and so it's business it, as usual in a lot of ways. Oh, it, it is completely business as usual, and other the other adults uh, websites. Well, for Traffic Jam, for example, I mentioned that it scrapes Backpage at one time exclusively. Well, now they're um, the, the the creator of that program <clears throat> thought it out well ahead as well, and they're scraping as many as 19 of the top uh, social media for adult posting. Hmm. Uh, they're scraping 19 different sites, so to we're still we're still picking up ours. I know we're I call them my girls because of the ones that I've been looking at since April that are involved in this ring. Uh, I know where they're at all the time. Um, I know which hotels they're at, you know. Uh, but there, I see how they pop up on different websites from time to time, and we can figure out how to find them very quickly if they change. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because when when Nick was first discovered that uh, that mirror site or that uh, what well, I'm not sure what I want to call it, yeah, he he contacted me late one night and said, George, go to this website and put in an ad. And I was like, uh, okay. So I put in, you know, I, I paid $5, whatever, put in an ad, and uh, sure enough, it popped up on Backpage. Ah, and okay. He, see, he's, he's got a guy that works overseas that, he, um, that all he does is Backpage. That's all he does. And this guy, you won't tell me what his name is. I don't care what his name is, but he's the one that found these uh, – these these pass through servers mm-hmm. that uh, Backpage has been setting up. Um, there's, I mean, they're they're all being subpoenaed. The Backpage. Uh, I, I saw a notice yesterday that Backpage International got slammed shut. I don't know if you saw that. No, no, I, I didn't. They posted it on a on a soft rep, but yeah. Oh, that that actually came from the the creator of Traffic Jam that tool. Uh, Emily Kennedy, she sent us all a note saying that Backpage International slammed shut. So there, you know, days coming. Um, I just look forward to the day they get the CEO uh, physically get him and uh, control him and get him in court. Because as you know, he's. Uh, I mean, he's he's been asked to testify and he just never shows up i think they actually uh i'm not aware of the current status of the case but i remember reading the charges uh when they dropped or not when the charges were dropped but when they when they came out and uh, i think they actually they were charging the ceo for pimping and several other uh employees of the company it was like it was like they, they knowingly were taking credit card transactions knowing that the girls were being pimped out. Uh, I, I believe that's... No doubt. Yeah, I, I believe that's the, uh, the crux of uh, the case that was brought against them. I, another thing on, on this note, George, that I was wondering if you could comment on, because I think there may be a lot of misconceptions in people's minds, um, but we'll get your take on it, is what is the role of the dark web, if any, in human trafficking? The, the dark web is... Um, you know, it, <clears throat> dark web was a mystery to me for the longest time. And then uh, I, I set out to, I just dedicated a day. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to get on the dark web. I'm going to, I'm going to go see three, I'm going to see three different things. I'm going to look for three different things. I'm going to see them. Then I'm going to leave the dark web and I'm never going to go back to it. You know, I just, I'm going to satisfy myself that I know that it, it exists. And so, and, and of course, there's the deep web and there's the dark web, but the dark web is what I'm talking about. It's it's everything on the internet, 
which is most everything on the internet that it cannot be indexed by a search engine. Therefore, it can't be found unless you know right where to look. So, and that's how that's how uh, child porn and this sort of thing is uh, being managed on the dark web. Is that you you you're not going to stumble into it. You're you're going to have to know exactly where to go. You're going to have to be privy uh, and deliberately get the right information from somebody to go there and get what you want. So I got into the the dark web. I basically used a tour. Uh, and I went in there and I saw what I was looking for and I said, wow, it's it's true. And then I backed out and haven't been back since. The, uh, the Nick tells me, and that's Nick McKinley, he says, you know, the dark web, you, you, if, you if, that, if something illegal like child porn even appears on your screen, they can come get you. And I thought, well, that sounds, that sounds like... That's a little bit far-fetched and, and sensational, like just because something appeared on my screen. But he maintained that, uh, but I, and I can't poo-poo that, and that, that does worry me. So I don't want to be back in there unless it's for uh, in the course of my duties, like it's our official work. Like we're we're, we're going to have to go to the dark web now because so much has moved to the dark web. Is now we have to meet them on their terms on the dark web. All right, well let's go. Let's find them then. <clears throat> But other than that, yeah, the, I will the, be there. The reason why I bring this up is well, something that I've been told in the past is that, uh, as you mentioned, child pornography is huge on the dark web, but human trafficking, yes. not so much. Uh, the reason being that it's um, the human traffickers are engaged in a, in a commercial enterprise at the end of the day. And so they need to yes. attract as many customers as possible. And that customer base yes. is on, you know, the normal web. It's on the put on the social media sites. It's on the back pages of the world, not on the dark web. Right. That's, that's right, Jack. Yeah. You're tracking, you're tracking hundred percent. Um, yeah, they, they got it. They got to get to their customer base. Uh, I mean the, the, this, this next network that I've been watching for so long, um, uh, you know, and it's a cat and mouse game. They, they, they get they get a level of sophistication just from everyday business, mm-hmm. especially when someone's after them. For the most part, no one's after them. Nobody cares, you know. But w- when we're after them for so long, um, and they start realizing it, they start changing up the way they do business a little bit. Yes. They they go so far as to do a, a really awkward uh, burn runs. In other words, driving erratically to see if somebody's following them <laughs> they're not good at it but they 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 can do it and it's effective but all they're doing is they're tipping their hand that they think someone's following them right in, in my opinion and uh, and they of course you know a moving target is hard to hit when they're good they they move a lot like they i've noticed they wouldn't stay in the same motel for more than about seven days then they pick up and they're easy as hell to find you know, I mean, as soon as they start posting again, you know, I'm on my burn, my burn line, uh, send them a, a date request and get it all the way down to, okay, what's the room number? Then I get the room number. Now I, I cut them away. I know what room they're in. I know what motel they're in. Um, and I present this to the Leo, you know, constantly uh, in the hope that they're going to move uh, on this guy. And I think they will finally because, um, you know, when we got – a big way they get a network a kingpin is they the best way to get them is they get one of the girls to flip mm-hmm. in other words she just decides that she's going to tell on them. that's hard to do uh, uh, 
it's very it's really hard to do really hard to do surprisingly um, yeah but at any rate we got um one of the, the first uh women that we liberated we got her pimp we you know rescued her got her pimp he crossed the state line the cops continued to follow him they picked him up he got 15 years his hmm. name is shane roach so he's and his sentence came down just this past october so he's 15 years in she's still in town we tried we try to work with her um as best we can hoping that she could help us but she's too far uh heroin's got hooks in her too far she's not reliable and almost worthless so but um yikes it's tough because a lot of the victims, yeah. they, they don't see themselves as victims at the time. No, no. Yeah, so we, but the, the point of her is that she was the only one that flipped and um, they prosecuted and they convicted the guy. Well, when, I, when we got one of the women for this next network to flip, we, we ran her up to Montana, dried her out, cleaned her up, brought her back. She's in all these programs. So she's a witness. And the Fed said, you know, you know what would be better than one witness? Two witnesses. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, man, that, that hoop is getting smaller and smaller that I'm trying to jump through here. <clears throat> so, and we're, and um, we've tried to get these, these last two women to flip. One of them's got mild, she, she's got, she has a mental condition. She doesn't have, she doesn't have the, the correct sense of reality. So she, she's not a possibility to flip. But this other one, uh, I think she will flip. She sounds pretty tough and talks a tough, a tough piece. But um, I think I convinced our HSI guys to talk to the DA and say, "Hey, you know what? There's been a precedence where we tried and convicted um, a trafficker with just one witness. Now, why can't we do that in this case?" And I think we're winning. I think they're going to take it. So that uh, that means within the next couple of weeks, we could have bagged the second one. Interesting. So his. The, the woman that we're trying to flip, now she's, she's big-time heroin, and um, the plan, these guys, they're just going to grab all the women and grab the pimp, and they're going to put her on ice for about six hours, this gal. Uh, after about six hours, she's going to you know, get dope sick, and at that point, she will sell her soul. It's, you know, it's not a matter of, like, will you flip? Yeah. It's like, you know, when will you flip? Because she's going to flip because of heroin. And, um, I mean, they're just going to lay, lay, the, lay the letter of the law down and say, hey, you're either, you're either cooperating or you're in prison with no heroin. So um, it's a shitty job, man, but that, that's how we get things done. And amazing stuff. I mean, this is a whole uh, new world, I think, for a lot of our listeners and, I mean, frankly, for a lot of Americans. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that law enforcement and that organizations like the Liver Fund have put the focus and put the spotlight on this subject for way, way too long. Human trafficking was something that was allowed to fester. It was allowed to exist, and, and we didn't devote enough time or resources to it. And it seems like that's beginning right. to change. People are becoming more aware of the issue. I, I really think they are. Uh, and I should point out probably one of the most important things about Deliver Fund. And, you know, Nick, Nick McKinley was, you know, he was an Air Force pararescue swimmer. Uh, he was, then he was a CIA, did about 30 combat tours in Pakistan and surrounding area. But he thought this thing out for seven years. And he, he put together the legal basis 
and the foundation of it years before he put any operators in positions. Mm-hmm. He's got multiple lawyers. He's got, uh, I mean, he's got, he's got I's dotted, T's crossed. He did a, he did a really good job. This organization is extant in that nobody, no other organization in the States is operating the way Deliver Fund is operating. They're, they're involved in rescue and recovery and uh, damage control and mitigation, but they're not actively targeting uh, network pimps and network kingpins and uh, collecting on them and uh, getting the law enforcement to actually, you know, arrest them. I mean, and the way Nick describes it very well is like, you know, you keep pulling the girls out. Oh, save the girls, save the girls. You pull the girls out, guess what? There's going to be, now it's, it's shelf space, and a new girl's going to yes. pick up that shelf space. Yes. And he, he described it as, in his own words as uh, attempting to shoplift Walmart out of business. You ain't, you're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's funny. true. It, it, it's true, though. But, uh, you know, God bless the victims. And, you know, I mean, I wrote about the, the victims, them lost girls. That's one of my strongest pieces that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like you know, so I, I do have a heart for them. But the mission says we got to go after the pimps. We got to go after the network guys. You know, we we're not we're not involved in rescue, and um, we have done it though. I mean, all those drives we do to other states with the girl in the car—that's that's not our business. But no one else is doing it, so we have to do it. I think you uh, you, you really put your thumb on it there, George, because I think for a long time, and, and even to this day, when we talk about human trafficking, it becomes this sort of like empathizing, you know, emoting like the poor women, the poor girls. And as you say, I mean, yes, they're victims and what's happening to them is horrible and we should have empathy for them. Um, But I don't think that's really in of itself resolves the problem for just the reasons you outlined that we put the spotlight on the victims and it almost becomes like victim porn at a certain point um, when instead we should be putting the spotlight on the victimizers and putting that, uh, you know, putting some daylight on the criminals and saying, look, these are the guys who are up to no good. These are the guys we need to bring in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not the fun part. You know, the fun, sexy part, the feel-good stuff is save the girls, you know, or fly, fly to the Philippines and save their kids. Like or, we don't have our own kids being or, trapped or, in the or go States. and make up a uh, man. I, I hate to say this, George, but I, I mean, there's a lot of these like private intelligence firms, and I see the, these like puff pieces they do, or, or they have somebody else write for them in the media, where it's like you know what what you're describing. It's like a rescue mission, and they're down in Costa Rica or Panama or something like that. And honestly, yeah, I think and why? I, I think most of those stories are fake. I think they're fabricated public relations stories. I think they're absolutely bullshit. If you if you'll pardon me, they, I really do. You can do. say whatever you want in um, here, man. We, we we can let's fix let's fix ourselves first, man. Let's let's take care of our own kids, then let's go take care of everybody else's kids. True. Um, you, you know, I mean, I mean, if I don't know, if, I don't I don't want to be like you know, laying stacks of brochures on countertops in motel motel lobbies, you know. Here's a number to call if you're being, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, and I think that's another reason why Nick likes mature guys because, you know, like we're not out there falling in love with our victims. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in to see a couple of the, of the victims were, whose uh, pimps were trying to uh, put away. I've been in to see them saying, hey, you have an opportunity here. 
you know, do you want out of this crap? Let's go right now. Yeah. Uh, not successfully. Um, you know, in the case of the, the one female that, um, that I've been watching for the longest time, she is, she has autism. She's slightly autistic, difficult to talk to. And so her sense of reality is not, uh, it's not kosher. That's so, horrible. Uh, in fact, the last time we, the last time we went to see her, we, you know, barged, did, did the date thing, barged in the room. She tried to grab her phone. Uh, one of HSI grabbed it first. We took a look. Um, we did a dump on the phone, and you could tell the usual uh, John numbers and the usual this, that. And one of the numbers was named Daddy. And I did a dig on that oh, number boy. and found it uh, was registered directly to the, her pimp. But I won't mm-hmm, say his name because he's not, we don't have him yet. So, she, yeah, her sense of reality is a bit skewed. She's not one that we're going to ever get to flip. Um, but the other the other girl, yeah, I, I, I'm very confident we'll be able to get her to flip. George, have you uh, – well, I'm sure at the end of the day after – because of your job, you probably want to go home and watch Disney movies or something like that. But I was just curious <laughs> that uh, – have you seen on, on Netflix there's this series I've been watching called The Keepers about uh, a pedophile ring in a Catholic school? Okay, the keepers. Okay, yeah, in uh, in Baltimore. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I, I was, I've been watching it. Watched a couple episodes of it, and, and I mean, I, I think we, we've all seen some like pretty horrifying things. Like this is probably one of the worst I've ever. Even heard though of. he's probably seen a lot worse than you have in this. Uh, yeah, area, no, he, he, he certainly has. Uh, but yeah, that, well, that we'll, series we'll see, is because I'm going to watch it. I'm going to pick up and start watching it this evening. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty horrendous. Yeah. The the pedophile priest was the principal of a girls' school. And he was also a psychologist. Mm. So you can imagine the way he was fucking with these kids. I mean, not, not just literally. I mean, yeah. figuratively, he was, he was mind-fucking. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. That actually sounds that very, that, that sounds very realistic to me in a lot of the situ, situations across the United States. I, I'm, I was appalled to see the endless number of college professors that have been busted and indicted for the same thing. Dude, you know, it's... They have, it's inter- access to all of yes. these young people. It's interesting you say that because I, I had a, um, an, I interviewed somebody uh, a while back, and uh, and it was about a different subject, had nothing to do with what we're talking about here today. But he kind of came off the cuff and told me uh, some personal things about himself, and he told me about how he was walking home from school uh, when he was like seven years old, seven eight years old. Uh, this would have been in like the nineteen seventies, I suppose. And uh, four okay. men, four men pulled over, and uh, they offered to ride him, home, give him a ride home. So he got in the car, and uh, they drove him out to uh, out to some cottage or something, and spent the entire afternoon having their way with this kid. Mm. And uh, yeah. and it turned out all four of them were college professors. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So this yeah, was I, a I, uh, I, this was a fun you interview. Wonder how they find out about each other, you know? Maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it's it's interesting how, how they it, figure out each other's like that and then it, band together. It's yeah, really, it it turns in me. it turns into a ring, and uh, and they all have blackmail material on each other too. So it's very it's this very oh, right. uh, inc- right. incestuous rings. Uh, you know, it's like the mafia or something like that, but yeah. worse. <laughs> hey, yeah, and. You know, I, I I get a lot of a uh, lot of readers. They you know they post in their post right form forum. They're like George, tell us please, tell us, make us understand 
where these people are coming from. What makes them do this? And I'm like, yeah, you know, you can, you can beat yourself up about it, trying to figure it out and hoping that you, somebody will explain it to you one day. But in the end, man, you just gotta, you gotta calm down and resign to the notion that, that you're just glad you don't understand True. Because that means True. you're not like that. Yeah. So, and then, then you can get some peace finally. Just be glad you don't understand them. I mean, the the reality where these people come from is they come from our communities. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's a part of our yeah. culture. It's it's something that exists in our culture, and you know, we have to recognize that, uh, and then we can take some steps to dealing with it the way you have. Yeah. And Jack, the the the, the guy that we just busted, Cornelius uh, Galloway, mm-hmm. the. The guy on top, I mean, when the cops grabbed him and did their first interview, he said, you know, he said point blank, he goes, hey, my dad was a pimp, my mom was a whore, that's all I know, so you got me. Yeah. It's wild. So I was just going to say, on to, you know, more of the thing that we usually talk about, this is definitely a darker subject than usual, not that this is any less dark, Um yeah. Being that, as I mentioned, you're a former Army Master Sergeant, first Special Forces Operational uh, Detachment for Delta yes, Force, sir. you do more than just human trafficking. So I actually just wanted to hear, because, I mean, it's in the news right now. We've talked about it the previous show. Uh, just your thoughts on what, what went down in Manchester and, and how do we actually combat this type of thing? I know it's a very complicated answer to a pretty complex question, but just figured I'd hear your thoughts since I've heard Jack's and, and Chris's as well, Chris Peranto. Well, um, I hate that you asked me that, but I'm glad you didn't ask me something like, George, sum up the problem in Syria. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, like I have, I, I, I have people like Jack and, and Alex and all these guys that have, a, a um, you know, a, a pretty sophisticated uh, understanding of the area that have been there. I have guys like that that can explain it to me one essay at a time. That's fine. Um, I can't. I. I, I just. I bear. I just know at face value what happened there. Um, and, and I've got a bu- bunch of pages marked, a bunch of tabs. Like I got to go back and read this tab. I got to read this article to try to get a better understanding of uh, you know what happened there. But I think and, even beyond you know the complexities of what happened, we've seen this before. Yeah, yeah. You know, we it's yeah. different, but we saw the Orlando nightclub shooting. You know, just how do we combat? And I know that that's a little different because there was a little bit, bit more of a personal issue there. He also, uh, that person was not killing young women, uh, you know, at just a random concert. He, he specifically targeted the gay community in Florida. But, I mean, just yeah. radical Islamic terrorism and these random acts like this, is there... I got into it with Jack, as I said in the last episode, but I just meant, you know, what what can we generally do as a country or as Western countries to combat this, or will we ever stamp out this problem? Um, one of the things that uh, that uh, caught my attention was a, a video clip of a woman in over in, in England, and she was basically saying... Um, Hey, people! This is this is just the way it is now. This we've got to accept this. And uh, I, I didn't read the comments after that, but I but I thought, wow, that is the that is the last thing you would ever want to say under the circumstances. Yeah, it's like the well, you know, we we uh, we have to accept now that uh, every couple of days there's going to be a mass shooting 
at Applebee's. Not inspiring so, confidence. Uh, we, but we still got to go to Applebee's because we have to eat. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. It, that that's definitely not the approach. I mean, and I I know the media. Well, I don't I don't know the media, but I'm saying when every time something like this happens, there's a there's a mad dash to keep the people calm. I understand that uh, to to convince the people that it's the sky's not falling, you know, and that uh, this is isolated. This is a lone wolf. This has nothing to do with uh, ISIS. You know, this is not Islamic terrorism. It's just trying to convince the people that, uh, you know, that it, it, that the sky's not falling. Got to keep them calm. Otherwise, you know, then then the re- the retaliation comes. Then you get, end up with an escalation of force, and you end up like freaking Duarte, and, you know, bringing your country under martial law. Uh, Americans, they they think the they know what martial right? law is like. Yeah. They, they they don't know what martial law is like. They don't know. Oh yeah, they think yeah. they do, but they don't. If they even had a basic understanding of it, they wouldn't want any part of it. Martial law is one well, of those things really... gets thrown around so much, man. I remember, like, even just during this past election, they were like, "I think Obama's going to suspend the election, <laughs> declare martial law." I heard it all the time. Um, oh my god! But so to play devil's advocate with what you were saying as we're wrapping up here. What about the people who would say, statistically, you're way more likely to be killed by a drunk driver than an Islamic terrorist? I mean, which is true. I'm not saying, you know, what do we do? Do you throw our hands up in the air? It it goes back to what you were saying, but. Yeah, uh, um, I, I am not doing anything different since I moved to Albuquerque. No matter what the news, no matter what comes out of the news, I'm not doing anything different. I'll tell you that, I mean, I mean, I my heart goes out to Israel, but you know they walk around uh, with all kinds of plans and with weapons strung across their back, um, and a whole bunch of plans for when when shit goes south. But it is impossible to keep your guard up day after day, all day long. Yes, I mean, even on a short stint like guard mount for a couple of hours, when I was a private, it's impossible to keep your guard up that long I, I had to play a game with myself i had to pretend like somebody really was trying to break in and i you know i could only play that game for an hour and a half but it, but it's the same here it's like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna keep my vigil up uh t- got my pistol all the time got my pepper spray i'm gonna you know check under the car i'm gonna do this that it, you do it for a few days and then it just kind of slips off yeah well so, it's that's just yeah. like um even here tonight i, I was on you know facebook earlier and Billy Joel is having a concert tonight at Madison Square Garden. And I saw that he posted, wow. get get there early because of heightened security. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it'll be heightened yeah. security for a while. And then it'll be back yeah. to what we know as normal security. And three, six months from now, it'll be the same as if you went to a Billy Joel concert or whatever concert prior to the Ariana Grande incident in the UK. Uh, I don't have to tell you anything, Ian. You already obviously understand it very well. That's the way I see it. Hey, I was hoping I could be selfish for Go about for a it. minute. I, I want, I want, Jack. I'd like to ask you: um, How did you? How the hell did you get an interview with Bashar al-Assad? <laughs> <laughs> how it, did that happen? You just like cold, cold call. Hey, <laughs> hey me, Uncle Bashar. <laughs> Uh, it, it was no, uh, great feat of mine. Uh, I was invited to that conference that the Syrian government hosted to bring journalists to Damascus. Um, yeah. Way back. When was it? Uh, last November. 
And um, while I was there, one of the organizers came and said, um, the, tonight, this evening, uh, you know, you're going to come with me in a small group to interview President Assad. And holy moly. Yeah. And I was like, okay, interesting. And, um, it was, a, it was a small group of people. There's like six of us. Um, uh, there's a New York times journalist, uh, someone from the New Yorker magazine. There was, um, a couple people from different think tanks. Um, and then there was me. And I think each of us were chosen to fill a different demographic to help. Okay. Right to to kind of spread the word as far and wide as uh, you know the regime wanted, and, and and in some I think we all spread the word in ways they liked and ways they didn't like, um, but that was kind of how that came about, and I think I was selected because I was the military voice in that group. I oh would, man, okay. I, I think okay. I think that's why they're like, okay, this is the guy, the editor of Soft Rep. They had identified me previously as someone who is anti-intervention in Syria. Um, I had written okay. ar- I had written okay. articles saying, you know, we should not intervene in Syria, um, at least oh, like overtly, like military action. We should not be involved in regime change there, and that's always been my stance on on Syria. And yeah, that uh, that of course is something that the Assad regime appreciates, you know, they're, they're like, yeah. yes, yes, we agree with this view, Jack. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's why I was yeah. selected for that. Yeah. I, I had a slight suspicion of, of a little of that. I remember thinking, well, first when I heard Jay did the interview, I'm like, who is this guy, Jack? I thought I knew him, but how does, <laughs> what kind of power does he have? For Christ's sake? I go, well, I mean, if, if, if that, if the president has knows anything at all about the man's position, he would probably want to do an interview. So um, I guess there you go. But yeah, that was that. Uh, that really threw me aback. The cool and, thing um, you said. You know, there was is, one other thing I wanted to ask. Uh, sure, Ian. Yeah, but I still. Well, I was just going to say but, real quick the the cool thing though that Jack has said before in a previous podcast. When you really think about it, it'll never happen again. No. There's never going to be someone who gets to do what you did. No, they got what they wanted out of it too. Like I, I've, I, I think I've said before, I've submitted my visa to go back to Syria, and they, yeah, they're and not interested. They're not interested. Yeah. So, sorry, what were you saying, George? Um, I just, I just wanted to be selfish again. I, I just wanted to know, Ian, how did you get where you're at? How did you get started in this biz and <laughs> end up where you're at right now? That's pretty pretty cool yeah no it is um i feel like i've talked about it a little bit on the show before so i i went to hofstra university for radio got a degree in radio uh first gig yeah first gig ever that i got was at sirius xm uh there was this show called fangoria radio based off the horror magazine at the time they were doing all different types of things they were doing fangoria tv uh and you know they had this radio show on sirius hosted by d snyder from twisted sister um, got to work on there. I, I helped make the theme music and it was, it was actually like this yeah. never ending internship. So at a certain point I was like, uh, am I ever going to get like on board here? Cause they were paying me, but it was like minimum wage. <laughs> so I left, Yeah, I worked at uh-huh. a vitamin, uh, call center, which was like the shittiest job in the world. <laughs> um, it sucked. You know what, it was such a position. It, you know, I was just one of those people where people would call in, they'd want, they'd want to buy whatever products we were advertising on the radio, um, and I would have to sell them on as much stuff as I possibly could. Uh, you know, and, and just working at this call center. I'm, I'm not even going to lie. Like, I remember 
uh, we sold this prostate product. I won't say who the company was. And some woman called and was like, I keep getting up to go to the bathroom. And I put her on hold. I'm like, does this woman not realize she's a prostate? They're like, just fucking sell it to her anyway. You know, like that's, that's how they were. So I was, it was a, yeah, it was a very like soul sucking job. And at one point, um, the guys from Fangoria Radio called me and they asked if I wanted to perform the theme music for the, uh, I think it was the fifth anniversary of the show at that point. It was like, all right, I'll come in. And the show was from, I think, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. or something, or 10 p.m. to midnight. It was around there. So no one on a Friday. So no one wanted to work this show. And I remember the current board op at the time was like, hey, Ian, you know how to board op stuff. Do you want to board op this show so I could kind of work on other shows and get a different schedule? And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, I'm working at... uh, vitamin call center uh so sirius <laughs> hired me that was that was 2008 i ended up uh board opping that along with shows like mojo nixon who's great um and i was a fan of andrew wilkow's show before i ever met him and yeah. i was still going to hofstra at the time and i remember the program director for hofstra was like hey for the uh mccain obama final debate at hofstra we're gonna have some people from sirius that you might know over uh at this guy alex bennett and he was like oh this cow guy uh, what it was like andrew wilkow and he said yeah and that was the first time i ever met him we kind of clicked thought he was a great guy still do i'm glad that i got to work with him uh and then how that happened was that his current producer at the time nick rizzuto went to leave uh and work for the blaze and so mike bins his call screener became the producer for that show and just naturally because i was hanging out with those guys it kind of fit that i would work on that show uh, I got a full-time position because I was doing work on Senator Bill Bradley's American Voices and they needed a producer. So I was like, hey, can I make this oh. a full-time oh. position and work on both shows? Uh, and then from working on Will Cow, met Brandon Webb. They, you guys had a uh-huh. different guy doing this podcast at the time. He, I don't know if you guys got rid of him or he left. I don't know the whole we story. We fired him. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Brandon just texted me one day. And this all kind of happened at once. The full time at Sirius and Brandon texted me like, hey, do you want to help us produce this show? And I even remember Brandon saying, how much do we have to pay you to do this? And I was just like, dude, I'm honored that you want me to be on board, whatever you want to pay me. And yeah, it led to this. And people were asking for two shows a week. And now we're doing it. Led to a full time position. And I guess that's uh, that's the story. And I'm, I'm glad to be working here with you guys. But it is funny because I am... I was always fascinated with what you guys did. And that's why when I was trying to do my own thing and start my own podcast somewhere in there, I had Brandon on on as my first guest, but by no means am I a special ops expert. And I was trying to make that clear and, I'm not a veteran, but I've learned so much talking to guys. Why is Ian on this show? (laughs) Stolen valor. I remember that one of the funniest reviews before we recorded, I was saying to you how I'm uh, to, to Jack. I'm not someone who thinks everybody is a hater who throws out criticism. So I'll read reviews, and if someone has legit criticism of me, I'll try to improve upon it. But I still remember one of the like weirdest iTunes reviews was about me, and it said, the host is... I remember it was basically, the host is not a veteran, has no military experience, yet he acts like what? he was in a Tier 1 unit. <laughs> How do I act no. like I was in a no. Tier 1 unit? <laughs> no. Yeah, so... No, that, that's- He's completely off base. Yeah, yeah I, I was able to kind of laugh that one off because some of the other criticism, like, all right, it's legit. They were like, Ian needs to expand his vocabulary and not say, um, dude, 
every two seconds. It was like, yeah, that's legit, bro. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that you you're, are active on the on the uh, writers page as well. Thanks. Because I mean, the writers page is one of the highlights of my day, man. When I can get in there and bust chops and uh, <laughs> make you know legitimate uh, uh, serious comments, and then just make fun. But that is the, one of the highlights of my day. Uh, I'm glad, George. And now so many subscribers yeah, are going to wish they could be on the writer's page, but it is completely be, secret. Oh be God. careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no, we appreciate you coming on, man, and we'll do this again soon. You guys could follow George on Twitter at George Ehan the Fourth, so that's George Ehand IV on Twitter. And then George also, it's funny you were saying, Jack, that after the work that George does, he probably wants to watch like Disney movies or something. So I do know that George does photography on the side, which yep. has to be a little bit lighter. Yep. Yeah. And I got a wedding shoot coming up in September. Nice. So I'm nervous about that. Those are really difficult, but, uh, um, uh, I, I, uh, I really appreciate you guys. I appreciate this interview. Um, clearly you guys were really listening to what I was saying because your questions were, were excellent so that i just uh really appreciate appreciate that about both of you yeah no thanks for coming on george i mean to me this is like uh what you're involved in is like the war back home that you know we should be fighting so um you know i love what you guys are doing at the deliver fund and uh i, I think it's just great stuff okay my compliments jack yeah thanks george and uh, i hope to talk to you again soon right on okay Thanks, Ian. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad to finally have you on. Yep. God bless you guys. Have a nice afternoon. Man, great interview. And, uh, you know, it's a dark subject, but I think a lot of people would say that he's doing God's work or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty amazing thing that he has to go through. And then also when he was describing, you know, you're trying to find out about child pornography, but then what if you're searching this out on the dark web yeah it's the illegal complexities of it like yeah. it's it's a pretty strange thing and so. you think about also the police officers who are mandated they're it's not illegal what they're what they're doing when they're assigned like hey go track down child pornographers and the the police officers have to see that shit yeah every day like Crazy. That, it wears on them and uh you know we talk a lot about like ptsd and stuff like that but think about the police officers too and some of the things they see yeah yeah Man, it's insane. Um, as promised, I did want to get to a few other things before we get out of here. Um, so we'll do that. I guess uh, the first thing I'll, I'll mention, you know, we could do a little bit more breaking news here since I'm going to put this up as soon as possible. Okay. Uh, so the guy who's running for Ryan Zinke's seat, uh, who's been on the show before, uh, his vacated seat since he's a member of the administration now in... Um, Montana. Zinke has been on the show, not this guy. No, not this asshole, but yeah, Zinke's been on. Um, there's only one, I, I don't know if you even know this, there's only one congressman in uh, Montana. You're the lone congressman. Because so the population's so small? Yeah, so it's almost like being the senator there. You know, you're pretty powerful. You're in a pretty powerful position. So this guy, uh, Greg Gianforte, is running for that Congress seat, and uh this is what he did to a reporter at the uh, at the Guardian. The CBO score, as you know, you were waiting to make your decision about health care until you saw the bill and it just came out. And what yeah, you and we'll talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if you okay, have to speak with right Shane, now. please. But you don't. Just... Sick and tired of you guys. The last time you came in here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> 
Get the hell out of here. The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You, the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. If you'd like me to get the hell out of here, I'd also like to call the police. Can I get you guys' names? Hey, you gotta leave. He just body slammed me. You gotta leave. I'm not gonna lie, I am smiling as this goes on because of the ridiculousness of the situation. Yeah. But, like, this is American politics now. You gotta ask the tough questions. Yeah, it's like we're turning into Italian politics now, like, or like Taiwanese politics. We're gonna start having fist fights in our parliament. Building. Yeah. Like, I thought it was crazy when, so Dan Bongino, who we had on the show, yeah. and, I, and I do like the guy, but do you remember when, when he, he. The bodyguard. Uh, pushed him. Didn't oh yeah, he? no. But I'm talking about when he was running for Senate, and someone asked him some stuff, and he, you know, they were recording it. It's a reporter, and Dan Bongino is like, "You fucking asshole, go fuck yourself!" Like he flipped out in the sky, and then they released it, you know, to the public, and he was just like, "Yeah, you know," he came out and he was like, "Yeah, this guy was really bugging me with some questions," and when you see it, you're like, "Oh, this does not look good for you, man." But yeah. at least it didn't get physical. When it gets yeah, physical yeah. like this, like that's a whole nother level. Yeah, I mean, it's like a loss of dignity. I mean, this is what happens when, you know, we live in a culture where it's like people are forever children. Like, we don't really grow up, Yeah, you know? The reaction, though, hey, look, it sucks that that happens. That should never happen to a reporter. But just where he's like, you body slammed me. You broke my glasses. Which I know he's saying because he's recording audio, so he wants it to be known what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. But it's just kind of fun. You know, it's almost like, I guess that was the reporter instinct. Like, if someone body slammed you and broke your glasses, I don't think your usual instinct would be to recap what he just did or to if you. you were, or if you were a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah, that's uh, some crazy shit. So I would, I, I don't know, does this disqualify you now from being a congressman? I don't uh, know. I would say so. I would say that if you can't keep your shit together... Uh, when someone asks you a pretty straightforward question, then probably you don't have any business holding public office. Who determines that, though? Because I would think this, the voters this could do. go to, yeah, this could go to yeah. trial at some other time, but I think he's still probably allowed to run, and I wouldn't be surprised if the voters are like, fuck the media, I like this guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that could be. I mean, I, like we've talked about before, and others have, Donald Trump ran an anti-media campaign. Yeah. And, you know, when I went on CNN, I said that to uh, Brooke Baldwin. You <laughs> to, said more than that. To, to their horror, I was like, you know, this is the anti-media campaign. You, the media isn't very popular. People don't like the media, especially news networks. Like, those 24-hour news networks are, like, just despised by the public. Um, so Trump was able to run an anti-media campaign. Uh, and I, I, I don't know if that relates directly to this event or not, but, you know, people becoming more and more hostile towards the media in general. And I mean, I think that, I think the media needs to take also a long, hard look in the mirror and, you know, about their practices, not that specific journalist sure. that got body slammed, but they need to look at themselves and, uh, do a little bit of soul searching as well. Um, but may, I don't know, maybe politicians just feel emboldened and feel like, uh, you know, they, they can take this like hostile stance towards the media. Um, the smarter ones know how to work with the media to their yeah. advantage, you know, even, even, uh, secretary Mattis. I mean, if you look at the way he handles the media compared to Donald Trump, it's like night and day. Sure. And, you know, he handles it like an adult. Well, I saw that Paul Ryan and other leaders of the party have uh, said, like, we condemn this behavior, so it makes me wonder, will this guy drop out? 
or if if he feels like he could actually win, know. maybe he'll say, I don't want to drop out. Yeah, I don't know. It's like there's no shame in politics anymore. I, I mean, the only thing that can really kick you out is if you get caught in a hotel room with a little boy or something. I mean, yeah. that's a, like Anthony Weiner. Like and that was like the, I mean, he was like rubbing one out like next to his infant oh son. Yeah. You know, and, and supposedly, I mean, it, it's, I guess there's some debate, but the woman he was sexting may underage. or may not have been underaged. Uh, so it's like uh, just short of that. I mean, you you know what what is disqualifying these days? I still need to watch the documentary on Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah, I have I have to as well. I, I was told it was pretty good. I've been told it was great. Actually, Andrew Wilcott told me it was great. Um, I told you I watched the one about Roger Stone, right? Oh, you did because I told you about that. Yeah, you I think? did. I did watch it. Uh, it was pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, I want to get him back in here. Yeah, I mean the, we've had him on. By the documentary phone, but... was interesting because I. It was almost like, is this like an expose on Roger Stone or is it like a PR movie made for Roger Stone? Because, I mean, on one hand, he's like on there on camera and he's like calling the filmmakers pinko liberal commies. But at the same time, the thing was made, it was almost made as like a a commercial, like an advertisement for Roger Stone. You know what? As you're saying that, I'm pulling this up. I actually showed it to my dad, so that's why I know it's on here. Uh, He put out like a kind of a response of exactly what you're talking about. So you know what? I'll play it. For the people who haven't seen it, wouldn't you recommend seeing Get Me Roger Stone? I'd recommend watching it. I mean, it tells you a lot about, you know, I I think there's some basic facts that you can derive out of that. Um, And Roger Stone's an entertaining character, if nothing else. So this is what he said to InfoWars, of course. That's what Roger Stone said. This is him kind of reacting to the premiere and all that of... uh, here we go. Uh, I got to pull this up. Just give me a second here. Week in New York City. Let's go back. Last week in New York City, I saw for the first time the Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. It is a triumph. It is neither a love letter nor a hit piece, but rather a fairly accurate depiction of my political career, as well as the rise of the conservative movement born of the candidacy of Barry Goldwater, bearing fruit in the presidency of Ronald Reagan, and ultimately resulting in the presidency of Donald Trump. Now, uh, I tried to figure out why Netflix would spend millions of dollars making and promoting a video uh, that is fair to me. And then it occurred to me, they expect President Donald Trump to fail. They expect him to be unpopular at the end of his presidency, and they hope to blame me for his election. Well, they're wrong on two counts. One, Donald Trump will be a successful president. Just because he has an idiosyncratic style of leadership that does not meet the mold of the airbrushed professional politicians who have preceded him does not mean that he does not have the leadership qualities to make America great again. And the upturn in the American economy shows that the Trump program is already working. And then secondarily, I did not elect Donald Trump. There is no Karl Rove figure in Trump world. Donald Trump is by and large his own strategist, his own press secretary, his own speechwriter. And because he does not operate off of polling or focus groups or roundtables to tell him what to say in order to be popular, 
because he speaks from the heart and from the gut and not from a speech written by some 25-year-old speechwriter, the American people realize that he is the genuine article. He is the master of his own fate. He is the architect of his presence. Stone's working and really I hard on the inflection in his voice. I have been a small part of it. I am happy to have played a small <laughs> part of it. He's doing the Richard Nixon. Yeah, uh, his idol. But it is, uh, it is interesting, and I, I do agree with him saying, though, that it was neither a hit piece nor a, you know, ass-kissing thing. I, you know? I thought it was a little odd in that regard that it tried to stride across both. Um, and and I, then I, he was fine with it. Like, he, you would think he'd be like, you know what, take out the part of me working with brutal dictators to get money for my political action committee. I, uh, well, it's funny that he goes on Alex Jones. Some, he, he's intimately involved with, isn't he like the financial backer behind InfoWars? No, I don't like think that? so. I, I think Alex Jones, for, as far as I know, I think Alex Jones just hired him to do a radio show. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe he does have some involvement. I've never heard that. Um, but anyway, there he is on, on InfoWars, and, uh, and he's saying they made a largely you know, positive, accurate, fair documentary about me, but they made it because I'm the victim here, and they're trying to expecting Trump to fail, and then they can come back around, and there's all this like Byzantine plotting going on. Yeah. It's like even when you make a, a what, in his words, a fair and accurate documentary about him, he's somehow the victim in some sort of uh, liberal scheme. Would you like to get him in here? Because you know? he has been, like I said, he's been on the show with Brandon and I, and uh, he's an extremely nice guy. I'll, I'll honestly say I like the guy. Uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I guess it would make for you know good radio. I, I don't expect him to be candid in any yeah. way with his answers. No, you know? he's always hyperbolic, and, uh, and he, in his words, he's I'm a political provocateur. Yeah, uh, you know, he's not he's not there to uh, wax poetic, or, oh, but and he's honest about it. Like that's why I actually do love the quote from him where he says, "The only thing worse uh, in politics than being wrong is being boring." Yeah, so he's, he's like, "So I try to never be boring," and he says, "The only way that you get attention is to be." wild and and to be the way Donald yeah. Trump has. So. Yeah, he's a political operative. He doesn't hide that fact. Yeah. Um so the way that we got onto this subject though was the Anthony Weiner documentary which I've yet to see. I did hear from Andrew Wilkow who saw it that like the best part is so Anthony Weiner would have been a shoo-in for the um mayor of New York had it have not been for this whole scandal. There's no way de Blasio would have won. But once it all happened, he was done. And apparently the best part, like, from what I hear, two of the best parts of the documentary are when he's with his staff making phone calls and really getting his name out there in the height of this whole scandal. And he's saying, like, man, I think we could really win this thing. And his campaign advisor and all these people are like, Anthony, you're not going to win. Like, they're just flat out telling <laughs> And he's like, no, I, th I think we could beat this. And they're like, no, it's over. You're it's not like going to win. I don't know, man. That that whole thing is so weird. Uh, he's obviously a mentally ill individual. Yeah, uh, he has a sickness of some kind. Uh, well, he's an addiction, you know. Yeah, and, and he's been, you know, he's. I think he's undergone treatment. And then the whole thing with Huma, also. I mean, like Huma, why are you still with this dude? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and I can only imagine that Hillary is like, no, you got to stay by your man so you can use him to leapfrog. And, you know, there's some, there's some liberal plotting for you, right? I would not be surprised if she was saying that kind of thing to humor, right? Well, there's always been the, um, 
the the rumor that they have some type of a lesbian there, there, relationship. There is. Uh, I, it might be a little Roger Stone esque, though. And, yeah. No, my sources have told me that's bullshit. There's no lesbian relationship or anything like that. It's more. Uh, it's more like mother and daughter, in the sense that uh, Huma is um, about the same age as Chelsea, and she started working for Hillary when she was a kid. Like she was still a teenager, and she's been with Hillary the whole time. So, gotcha. Yeah, they're pretty close. And then the other part of the documentary, which I still need to see, that I've heard is when he's just, I guess, in his hometown or something, and you know, Jewish community, and there's some guy in a yarmulke screaming at him like, "You pervert! You should be ashamed of yourself!" And instead of Anthony just like walking, you've probably seen the clip because it was all over the news. Instead of him just like walking past this guy, getting back to his car, he starts engaging the guy. And he's like, what about you? Who are you to judge me and all this stuff? Is that when he was in the deli getting like a pastrami on rye? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was, you know, a Jewish community. So he just handled it terribly. And the whole thing is like he would get out of the spotlight after this and he still get. So, you know, I actually do feel in that for the guy that definitely has some type of an addiction. Yeah. But, you know, I I don't I don't know what else to say beyond that. It, It. it does suck. I mean, if, if it was involving minors, then no, I don't feel bad for that. But if it was him just luring girls on Twitter, you know, and then claiming I got hacked. It's clear that it's something that, like, he's not even in control of. It's like a real addiction. Like, he literally cannot say no. Yeah. You know, the fact that he has to keep sexting women all the time. It's yeah. like, what's wrong with you, man? Come on. And then the last thing, before we get out of here, I will hand you this blown-up picture of Gene Farnsworth. There's Gene. Uh, it's, and I know it's not the same. I'm not even going to I've attempt. met Gene before at a software party. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. So I'm not even going to attempt to uh, read this in a Gene Farnsworth voice. It's not the same without the <laughs> no, voice memo. No, it's not. So you're not. just going to hear it from my voice. Uh, how do you listen to Cast 250? It's funny even me reading it, like, because you want to hear his voice. All right. How do you listen to Cast 250? Really appreciate the kind words. My kids get a real kick out of your remarks. I live in Denver. I thought it was Michigan. I live in Denver, but work all over the USA. Currently running a project at the VA in Topeka, Kansas. Would love to get back to New York. Last time I was there, a plane flew into the building over my head. Want to get back and pay my respects to those folks who died that day. Uh, I included a picture so Jack can see that he is half right, <laughs> half a gray beard on my face. Uh, take care. Looking Gene. good, Gene. Looking good. And I, I mean, I think uh, if the goatee is a preview, he can grow the old sailor beard. I, yeah. I, I think he could do it. That would be badass. All right. Well, we went um, nearly two hours here. Now that we could do these two shows a week, we could go long. And now you can listen to me rant about <laughs> all things social, political, religious all day long. Yep. I love it, man. And I guess to your friends who just listened to the show on Apple Podcasts, tell them to become a subscriber because they get yes. stuff like this. Absolutely. I wasn't even sure, though, with... um, I was going to mention it, but I still haven't gotten an answer. Desiree was saying how... Memorial Day weekend, we're opening up the paywall. Yeah, but I don't know yeah, if that yeah. includes the radio show. I don't know I, if it includes yeah. the radio either, but um, but over the Memorial Day weekend, yeah, you'll be able to check out. I think the entire website, all of SoftRep, will be viewable for non-subscribers. So tell your friends. Yeah, if you're interested, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell <laughs> your pets. You know, tell everybody. Um, and you can go check out the website and, and see if it's something you're interested in, you know. I or think. they are, because these people are already interested. If they're yeah, listening. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and if you like the content on there, um, and maybe you consider subscribing. And I, I might, you know, recommend that you go and check out lots of Jack Murphy articles. 
Uh, but no, check out uh, George, Hand. George Hand's work. I mean, there's so many people on the website that have made contributions. Um, it's incredible. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.